CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, molecular biology. It's STEM for those of us whose knowledge of genetics is a little recessive. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to stop laughing at these. <laughs> I was speaking to my mother on the phone and she said she closed with the line, give my love to the lizards. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of lizards that, you know, live in my neighborhood. I think they're called anoles or anoles. I don't know which is the correct pronunciation. Ooh, I don't Uh, know. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But my mom um, has developed a real fondness for them when she's visited. And um, we like to to look at the lizards. <laughs> uh, what do these lizards look like? Oh, so they're mainly, they're green, but different shades of green. Some of them have a white stripe that goes down their, their back. And then the males of the species have a dewlap. So it's like a red dewlap that comes out of the bottom of their chin, like their throat. Um, oh, area like a that, rooster kind of thing? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I just see them, you know, crawling around. Uh, I saw one eat a butterfly once, which was (laughs) kind of upsetting. But then I was like, I guess that's nature. (laughs) I guess that's nature. Uh, What a funny sitcom that would be. I thought it was a moment where I was like, oh, wow, that butterfly is really like landed and staying on the, oh, no, it's being eaten. (laughs) Oh, just the horrors of nature. Well, Anoli got to eat too. You know what I mean? Anoli got to live. They have to. They need it. I'm happy for them. I wish I hadn't seen it, though. So what have you been reading about this week? Um, Something very cool. Uh, The Magellan Telescope, which is going to be the most powerful optical device ever engineered, uh, (gasps) is getting even further in its development. Um, It's basically going to be made up of seven different mirrors um, that we're going to be able to use to look at space um, and give us a much clearer picture of, you know, our universe and other things out there. The sixth mirror, six of seven, has just been cast. (sighs) Chills. Yep. And where will it be? Uh, it's going to be in Chile, I believe. How and large are these mirrors? So every mirror is over 27 feet in diameter. Wow. It's like two feet thick. And it's not a regular mirror. It's got kind of a honeycomb structure. Um, and so it's much lighter because otherwise it would be probably so heavy. It There's a chance that it could break. Wow. Yeah. It's It's very... Very cool. And it's a very cool design. And it's just going to be so much bigger than anything that we've had in the past. I'm guessing that Stitcher would want to pay for us to go visit it once it's been assembled, right? Absolutely that you're going to say that Stitcher would want to pay for us to have our own version of the mirrors. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, should we introduce our guest for this week? Let's. We also have a really special guest for Storytime 
so excited. This week, we have Sashir Zameda. You know her from Saturday Night Live and the new ABC sitcom Home Economics. And she's here helping us tell the story of a Black medical leader from the mid-20th century. Also, we are talking to Raven Baxter. She is a molecular biologist and a science educator. If you've seen her online, you're probably way more familiar with the name Raven the Science Maven. She's pushing back against the idea that Black girls can't be into science. I was so excited for this interview because I feel like she always does a really great job of being the most truest version of herself. She's smart, she's Black, she's nerdy, and she likes to make music videos up to rap about it. So... I think it's great. She loves molecular biology. That's just who she is. Yes, it was a great interview. And I was so excited that we got a chance to speak with Raven. All right, let's do it. Let's get to our interview with Raven Baxter. Is there like a really cool fact about molecular biology that you feel like when you tell people this, it really gets them excited about molecular biology? So there's so much. (laughs) Uh, um, (laughs) There's so much. Like, I think one of the coolest things about molecular biology is mm, signal transduction and signal cascades. And ultimately, it's like a big term for a domino effect that happens with molecules where one molecule interacts with another molecule and then that molecule interacts with another molecule and it forms pathways of communication and those pathways influence different behaviors in our bodies different outcomes in our in our bodies and i just think it's so cool learning about all of these different molecules that have impacts on other molecules in the cell like and the names for them too like In order to create melanin, I think there's a molecule in that pathway that's called dopachrome. And I think that is the coolest (laughs) name for a molecule because I think, I don't know, there's a lot of unpacking to do there. But like for my own personal reasons, I think that is so cool. Um, Yeah, no, if my nickname was dopachrome, I'd feel like the coolest person in the world. Right? Like, come on. And the fact that it's in the pathway to create melanin. Um, which is what makes me so brown. I just think that's really cool. (laughs) I I think that's really awesome. I will admit that the first time I looked you up, I did not know what a molecular biologist does. Yeah. Can you describe what a molecular biologist does uh, in the most basic terms that you can think of? Well, yeah, sure. We do a lot of different things, but I think at the very core of it, we are people who are answering questions about life by looking at molecules, different kinds of molecules, whether it be DNA, RNA, or proteins, and understanding how all of those things work to generate processes that generate life and maintain life. Okay. And what about describing your job in the, uh, what a molecular biologist does in the most technical terms? Mm. Again, it's a very broad field. I can speak on things that I've done as a molecular biologist. So when I was in graduate school, I was looking at how proteins fold. So I was a protein folding researcher and also the evolution 
of protein folding and understanding how over time as DNA, um, as our DNA changes, the way that our proteins fold and our shape change because, you know, DNA codes for protein. So, um, but when proteins fold differently and into different shapes, it changes their function and what they can do inside of our cells. But that's just literally the tip of the iceberg. There's so many other things. And just to clarify a thing, because I don't know, do proteins fold um, because they're very long and they need to fold to kind of fit? Or are they folding because that's like a function of how they move? You know what I mean? Yeah, they fold according to their amino acid composition. So if you can kind of think about like, this is a little bit of an incorrect comparison, but magnets, you know, how hmm. they attract each other and they stick together. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what's happening with amino acids, but there's many amino acids. So, and they all have different properties of attraction with one another. So you can imagine if you have like a necklace, a beaded necklace, and each one of those beads has a different type of attraction, it's going to, if you crinkle up or if you just hold the necklace, it's going to start folding in on itself in different ways. Oh, based on, yes. Yeah, based on each one of those beads. So that's exactly what's happening with, with proteins. That makes so much sense. You described that in a way that I was like, oh, yes, I understand this. Yes. Okay, great. Yay, I'm glad. That's actually very hard for me to explain. So. <laughs> <laughs> How hard is it to come up with good analogies? And I know you're, you know, now working in science communication. Are, are coming up with analogies an important part of that? It is. And it's a very tricky place because, as I said before, like, even the analogy I gave you with the magnets isn't correct because amino acids aren't attracted to each other through magnetism. Like, so that's why I preface this by saying this is kind of wrong, but the most important thing for me is that you get the visualization and then we can kind of backtrack a little bit later once you have um, your foundational understanding of what it really is that I need you to understand at that point mm-hmm. in time. So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely important for science communication but i think a lot of people get tripped up with the being correct all the time thing and like it's a it's a fine line how did you discover molecular biology when i changed my major from environmental science to biology in college genetics was a required course in the biology program and i had to take that class to move forward cuz it was a prerequisite for every other class i needed to take So um, although I wasn't really interested in genetics at the time, I had to take it. And I found it so fascinating Mm. because I am, I do speak more than one language. um, And I hadn't quite realized that our cells also speak a language. And Mm. that's the genetic code. I don't know. There's just, there's so much happening. Like there's things in our DNA that are called promoter regions and they're regions that tell proteins to come and to a certain location on the DNA to start reading it at a certain location. And there's terminator sequences that are like periods on a sentence that tell these proteins to stop reading here um, and that the job is done. Like it's, it's literally like learning a language. And then I just did not want to stop because there's so much to explore there. So many different types of genes, so many different types of proteins, um, and all of these things kind of work a little bit differently depending on what organism you're looking like. Like human DNA is linear. Bacterial DNA is circular. Like <laughs> they, wow. they're they in rings. Yeah. 
called plasmids. So like things like that. It's really dope. And also bacteria don't even have like they don't have a nucleus. They don't huh. have any organelles. Like everything's just in a soup. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. The, it, it, sorry. Uh, the reason I'm so surprised is I, I know very little and I've talked about it on this show. Um, I really I missed ninth grade science. But that like the idea of cells having like a nucleus is to me just one of those basic fundamentals. And so to learn this, I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> there's so much. There's so much I don't know. Exactly. Imagine how I felt like already being in the field and then realizing Oh, man, there's so much that I still need to learn. And <laughs> it's a fun rabbit hole to go down. So part of your life now is in, as we said, science communication. And to that end, you're Raven Baxter, but you're also Raven the Science Maven. Can you tell us about when you're Raven Baxter and when you are Raven the Science Maven? Um, Raven the Science Maven is, I consider it just my nickname for myself as Raven Baxter. Um, I really try hard not to separate out my identity as a scientist from my identity as an individual, because when I'm a scientist, I'm still Raven Baxter. I'm still, you know, goofy. I'm still fun. I still care. Um, I still have things outside of science that are important to me before I'm a scientist. So I want people to know I'm a human before I'm a, a character and a scientist before anything, right? So you're integrating rap and science. Can you talk about why you do that? Um, it's what feels natural to me as a person. I love science, obviously, but I also love music as a whole. I love um, not just rap music. I'm literally all over the place. I love opera. I love K-pop. I love, love reggaeton. And I love rap. I love rock. I love alternative music. Indie, I'm all over the place. Um, but it just so happens that I'm the most gifted and talented <laughs> as a rapper. And so um, it just felt very natural for me to blend my passions and talents in science with my passions and talents in music. And the first music video I made was in 2019. And it was a play on Megan the Stallion's song, Big Ol' Freak, I think it's called. And mm -hmm. I have a good friend, her name's Jasmine, and she's in Cleveland. I'm in Buffalo, so that's three hours uh, apart. But I said, Jasmine, I had this dream <laughs> that, um, you know, that I had remixed Meg the Stallion into a science song. And that, like, the music video would be, like, me and a whole bunch of dope black women, like, dancing and, like, twerking in front of a car but it's all about science. And she was like, yeah, go on. And I'm like, yeah. so can we make the video? And she was like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, are you sure you want to co-sign to this? Because, <laughs> because I'm serious. Are you serious? She's like, I'm serious. And so we were both serious. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and so we made the video <laughs> and it ended up going viral. Um, and it actually ended up becoming the centerpiece of my doctoral dissertation due to the overwhelming amount of support that I had received from um, other Black women who really had the desire to see themselves in, in the context of owning their bodies, owning their intelligence, um, self-confidence, and representation in, in science. 
Had you seen any of Raven's music videos before we did this interview? Yeah, I saw um, Wipe It Down really early on uh, in the COVID times. Lights off, wipe it down, Clorox, wipe it down, lights off. And I was just like, oh, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Had you? I had not. No, you you mentioned her um, early on, I feel like, when we were thinking about this podcast and who we wanted to have on. And I feel like she was one of the early people that you mentioned. Yes, 100%. And I think one way you could listen to that song and be like, oh, that song's just fun. What a pop. And it is. But more importantly, if you look at when that song came out, it came out 11 months ago. That means mm-hmm. we're about one month into, uh, you know, COVID-19 really being a thing in the U.S. And a lot of people, we, there was still so much we did not know. We didn't know if it, you know, how it was transmitted, how people yeah. were getting it. And the amount of information she's giving in one, what is it, minute and 31 second song is incredible because people, we didn't, I personally didn't know how to digest all this science news I was getting. And it just seemed very scary. This makes it seem like it's possible to not only understand, but to protect yourself Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I understand. My bachelor's and master's degrees are both in molecular biology. Um, And so my doctorate's in science education. And one of the first things that I learned in my education program is how to see people as people, (laughs) believe Mm. it or not, Um, and about identity. And it was like night and day, the difference between thinking as a science educator and thinking as a scientist. Like Mm. there were a lot of things that I had to unlearn, a lot of things that I had to learn, um, not only about myself, but about other people and just making things more personal, um, making your research more personal Mm. and understanding who you are so that you can understand other people and then understanding other people so that you can understand how to teach them. And that was really a fundamental piece of my foundation as a science educator and also as a science communicator. I think like if you follow me on any of my platforms, I think that I talk about like my lived experience and try to get to know other people's lived experiences almost as much, if not more than how much I talk about science. Like I think that building your platform on community first is really important when you are a science communicator. Hmm. Hmm. Was there a moment when you said to yourself, this is the path that I want to take? Once I started building a community, I guess, based on my own values and seeing how many people related to me and what I had to say or valued what I said or wanted to give me a chance and listen to what I had to say. Um, And the lives that I ultimately have changed by providing representation as I have in this space really did signal to me that I was doing a good thing and that I should keep going. And I probably would have done it anyways, just because it's the only thing that feels natural to me at this point. But having the support from, from everyone really does encourage me to keep going and that this is, this is the right moment. I think I would say a particular moment would be the outpouring of support after I released my big old geeks music video. 
really just confirmed that the space that I was trying to make in science was needed mm-hmm. and that I had to just proceed by any means necessary at that point. I think sometimes, especially right now, it can feel like there's a there's a very big disconnect between science and the people that are telling us things mm-hmm. um, and the people that they are as people. We had an, a conversation earlier this year with Dr. Celine Gounder, um, who was on the coronavirus task force, and she also spoke about how they can feel like there's a big disconnect. But it seems like you're really working to bridge that. Absolutely. I'm really glad that these conversations about being relatable to the public are happening because that's that's the reality of things. Like, I even was having a conversation with someone who was a vaccine doubter. Um, mm. And, like, I totally understand why somebody would be hesitant to take a vaccine based on many things, including but not limited to um, <laughs> the way that things have been communicated uh, mm-hmm. by administration and also the historical mistreatment of minorities in healthcare practice. Uh, so I'm not going to hold it against anybody if they're like, well, vaccine, huh? like, you know, a little hesitant. So I was in a conversation with this person and, you know, they're a little defensive because of my position as a scientist. And I always try to make people know, like, I'm literally just here to, to give information. You do whatever you want with the information, but I just want to be a source for you. But they were like, well, why should I trust you? And I'm like, mm. I don't know. I don't know why you should trust me. But then I started, <laughs> I don't, I started telling them about myself and, and my story. And I talked about how I became a scientist and all of the things that I had overcome. Like I had failed out of college my freshman year um, because I had a 0.6 GPA, but I was able to grind and pull it back up to a 4.0 by the time I graduated. And I talked about how I endured like mistreatment during my professional career that I had to kind of push through and, you know, that really just emphasizing that I wasn't, I'm not in the field, you know, to do anything but uplift people who look like me Mm. and to provide representation. And because I love science, like I genuinely love science and I wouldn't have gone through all of these things that I went through for nothing. Right. And they were like, Oh, wow. I, you know, didn't realize that scientists were people. (laughs) That's what they said. And then, you know, they were very much more receptive to me giving them the scientific information than before the, you know, before we had gotten into that dialogue about my personal life and I was trying to give them scientific information. So um, it really does, it does mean a lot. And that person is now vaccinated so wow yeah doing the work yeah but it's all like it's not that hard we just have to get a little personal like that's Mm -hmm. literally all i did i mean it's i think just i don't i don't have any profound thoughts just the um just the power of people feeling like you're being truthful Mm -hmm. um and also that you're listening to them this is not a profound thought at all, but <laughs> I, I it was reminding me of when we are working on our episode outlines and we write questions and I tend to write them as very like generalized, nonspecific questions. And Tamika is always encouraging me to make them more personal and more related to myself, mm. which is not my first instinct, but I think she's very right. And the show is better 
when I do that. I don't know. I thought of that for some reason when we were listening to that segment. I, I think Tamika, our, she's going to cut this part out, but I'm still going to say it. Our honestly Emmy-winning producer <laughs> is is not so good because she's um, driving us to get a certain point, but because she's always encouraging us to go deeper, to get more personal, to be vulnerable, and not in a manipulative way, but in a way because this show is all about curiosity and understanding. Yeah. And you do have to be a little bit personal, willing to get a little bit personal in order to share your curiosity and to learn. Let's pause the conversation and take a short break. Up next, we're going to learn more about molecular biology from Raven Baxter. We'll be right back. And we're back. Let's get into some molecular biology 101. So, like I said, we have some basic questions. We're going to try to ask the questions that uh, maybe people uh, are a little afraid to ask or don't want to admit quite that they don't know. So we all think, I think we all think we know what DNA Mm -hmm. is, uh, but what is it really? (laughs) So DNA is a sequence of nucleotides that translate to information It is the fundamental building block of proteins, which are the molecules in our cells that do most of the work. So I could say, like, if you were building a Lego house, the DNA would be the instructions to make the Legos and the Lego people. (laughs) (laughs) I talk on uh, I'm on NCIS and I, of course, give scientific facts all the time. Um, But sometimes I talk about like, oh, this DNA is too corrupted or it's too old. I don't actually know what that means. Can you tell me what that means? Yeah, there's enzymes that can break down the bonds in DNA. And usually when you are trying to analyze DNA for like forensic purposes, you need the whole sequence, right? Because reading the whole sequence will be able to tell you more information about where the DNA came from. So if the sequence is chopped up into a million pieces because an enzyme got to it, that's not going to do you any good um, because ah. you can't put, how are you going to put the pieces together? It's like trying to put together pieces of paper after you put it through a shredding machine. So actually when you, um, for molecular biologists, when you work in a lab and you're doing work with DNA, we actually have a s- special spray that can break down DNA and RNA but basically, it, it protects your working environment against the degradation of your genetic material. That's great. I'm now going to, whenever I say that, I'm going to add a sub monologue in the <laughs> script and be like, let me just explain this because I did not explain, <laughs> understand it. No. So this is a show, uh, and obviously the T in STEM stands for technology. I'd love to hear about any ways that technology is uh, helping affect or improve molecular biology. We humans are still learning so much about our bodies. Like, we don't even know how our brains really work that well, you know? There's just so much to learn, and we've developed technology to help us do this work. And it kind of turns out that the very technology that we've developed is sometimes even better at understanding and predicting (laughs) some of the things happening in our bodies. Um, We are currently using artificial intelligence to answer questions about protein folding. Mm. And there is a protein folding competition that, this is so nerdy, I'm so sorry, (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> this is what we love. Yeah. So every couple of years, there's a, a protein folding competition that scientists have participated in, molecular biologists. And it's like a puzzle game. So there's this organization that hosts this competition and they give out a protein sequence to a group of scientists. And it's our job to figure out how, depending on that protein sequence, how the protein will fold. So we're trying to predict the protein shape based on the sequence without knowing anything about the protein. And so um, the past few years, they've thrown in a computer in the mix. Hmm. um, And it turns out that the computer can actually predict the protein folding more accurately than the humans. And it's actually won the competition, I think, for the past um, two uh, competitions. So it's called AlphaFold, I think. And that's the name of the program that's beating us in protein folding prediction. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Is there a, is there a betting system? Can <laughs> I bet? <laughs> is Vegas taking bets? My Make bets on coin. the computer now. Like, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Like it's it's really it's really cool because I mean I know it, it sounds scary that computers are operating this efficiently, but being able to make these kind of predictions about proteins, it's going to be really important to furthering our understanding about medicine. Like there's protein folding Mm. diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's Mm. um, and also prion diseases that we are still learning about. So having a computer that can understand and predict protein folding will ultimately help us to treat diseases like that or create new medicines Mm. that are based on proteins or... You know, there's just so much. Proteins are so important to our bodies. So the more we can understand, the better. And if it's computers that help us get there, I I welcome it. Mm. And and what's a prion disease? I've I've never heard of. Mm, ever heard of mad cow's disease? Yes. So that's that's an example of a prion disease. Um, a prion mm. is like a misfolded protein that acts a fool in your cells and starts. And <laughs> starts causing other proteins to misfold and act a fool. I'm going to try to make an analogy. It sounds like a prion disease is a DJ is like a DJ who plays juveniles back that thing up and causes all the other molecules to act up. It's okay. It's like if the DJ was playing juveniles back that thing up, but never let the beat drop. Oh, oh. okay. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, I'm with you. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> all you hear is cash money in the nine nine two thousand, and then it goes back yep, to the beginning, and everybody's like, "Wait, <laughs> but wait, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be." Or he lets a beat drop, but he only play it for like two seconds. Oh no, 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 no! I can't. Unacceptable. Even now, Unacceptable. We gotta yeah. walk out the club at that point. I'm like all off mic. I'm like, no, I'm upset. Okay. <laughs> That is Molecular Biology 101. I think that's a great way to end that segment. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This was wonderful. Of course. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's take one last break. And then we've got the story about a physician and leader in the fight against a challenging genetic disorder. (laughs) 
Welcome to Storytime. We have a very special guest this week, Sashir Zameda. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Wait, let's actually talk about Sashir. So um, your parents were Trekkies, correct? Yeah, yeah, my parents were Trekkies. Uh, trekkers back in the day, as they used to be called. (laughs) (laughs) And they're watching uh, the first iteration of Star Trek, and Captain Kirk was flirting with the alien princess, as he usually does. And Mm -hmm. he gave her a rose and said, uh, you know, was trying to flirt with her, and she goes, oh, this is something that we have on my planet, except it's made out of crystal, and it's called Sashir. And they saved it. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I also love that very specific choice that the Star Trek writers chose to make, where they're like, "What if he's always trying to get with the alien?" Princesses? Oh man, he's horny choice. the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> You've done a lot of work. You've been on Home Economics, which is coming out on ABC. Uh, you have a show on Hulu called Woke. You guys just got ordered for a second season. Congrats! Thank you so Yay. much. You have a podcast with Nicole Byer called Best Friends. Comes out on Wednesdays. Please check it out. I do love that podcast, by the way. And you're the celebrity ambassador for the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. Yes. Yeah. Um, I feel very fortunate to be working with them to help women's rights. Oh, that's amazing. Well, we're so glad that you're here today to help us tell the story of Yvette Faye Francis McBarnett. And so without further ado, should we take it away? Yeah. This is the story of Yvette Faye Francis McBarnett, a Jamaican-born physician who was a medical pioneer for people with sickle cell anemia. First off, let's be clear. She was a genius. You know what she was doing at 14 years old? She was starting college. At 14, she just goes by Faye Francis. She is a high achiever, clearly. And she has goals. After immigrating to America with her parents, she grows up in Harlem, skips some grades in school, and then sets her sights on college. Faye finishes her bachelor's degree early, and then she's at a crossroads. Go to medical school? Nope, too young. Get a job? Nah, she's also too young. Then, of course, she's Black in 1940s America, so jobs she's qualified for go to white applicants. So instead, she goes back to school. She gets a master's degree in chemistry at Columbia University. Then finally, she goes to medical school. By 1946, she's just the second black woman ever to enroll at Yale School of Medicine. Faye is on her way. She's only 19 when she starts medical school. Wow. Wow. Couldn't be me. No. (laughs) (laughs) Could not be me. Now, I don't have to tell you that the late 1940s was a racist era, but the late 1940s was a racist era. Despite that, though, Faye urges more black people to apply to medical school. In a letter to the Pittsburgh Courier, she writes, I have been urging all the prospective black medical students I know to apply, but most feel it would be a waste of time. This is not true. So she graduates from medical school and, you know, does the other stuff to get board certified and then goes from Faye Francis to Dr. Francis. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) This is a turning point in the story. She moves to Chicago and begins a residency in pediatrics at a hospital. We're right in the thick of the Great Migration. That's when a lot of Black people are moving from the South to Northern states. So Chicago has a growing Black population. 
Now, this detail is important because it's at this hospital that Dr. Francis sees her first case of sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell anemia is a genetic disorder that's especially affected Black families and others with African ancestry. We're not going to pretend to be experts on sickle cell anemia, but here's our understanding of how it works. So, imagine a blood cell. You're probably thinking of a round, red, disc-looking thing that's floating in blood, right? Well, when you have sickle cell anemia, the blood cells might be more crescent or sickle-shaped. So they can potentially cause blockages in blood vessels, depriving your tissue of blood and oxygen. It can cause pain, organ damage, strokes, blindness, and more. It was often misdiagnosed and mistreated due to the wide variety of symptoms. People that have it are born with it. Symptoms begin to manifest in infancy or childhood, and they can potentially worsen over time. This is shocking to Dr. Francis. Even after she returns to New York City to work as a doctor, it's still on her mind. Treating the disorder would consume her attention for decades. So fast forward to the 1960s. Dr. Francis got married at some point. Dr. Francis McBarnett is now running her own private practice. She's also working as a pediatrician at a hospital in Queens. There, she and some colleagues establish a foundation for sickle cell research. During this period, the disorder is incurable, but it's becoming moderately more manageable. For children, Dr. Francis McBarnett begins prescribing antibiotics. Now, this is more than a decade before those drugs are widely accepted as a treatment by the medical industry. She is ahead of her time. By 1970, she's also voicing the importance of early detection. Despite this being a disorder that could be detected in infancy, New York hospitals didn't have to test for it. Years before screening became a mandate in New York, her clinic had already tested over 20,000 children. She also joins a White House advisory committee. Their recommendations led to the 1972 National Sickle Cell Anemia Control Act, which gave federal funding for screening, education, and research. Looking back at her life, she took one step, then another, then another, all helping lead the way for more support for people living with sickle cell anemia. Today, there's only one known cure. That's a bone marrow transplant. But the procedure comes with significant risks. A lot more work needs to be done, but people haven't forgotten Dr. Francis McBarnett's pivotal contributions. Okay, that's it. Thank you for introducing me to Raven. I'm so glad that we had the chance to have her on the show. Oh, yeah, me too. Even just talking about, like, <laughs> this is so silly, but even just, like, learning the molecular biology in relationship to juvenile, uh, which everybody knows is my song, um, <laughs> is just so exciting and fun, and she just makes it feel doable. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know you follow her on social media. Should we should we mention her social handle so people can follow Raven? That sounds really good. On Twitter, she is Raven Psy Maven. I just looked at I'm looking at her Twitter and she won the State University of New York Chancellor's Award for Student Excellence. Oh, <laughs> that's so much better than what I was looking up. I was looking up um, cash money records. Um <laughs> That was actually a trivia question, which is, what is cash money 
According to the song, Back That Thing Up, what is cash money taking over? And everybody was like, I don't know. I'm like, for the 99 in the, in the 2000s. How don't you know that? <laughs> Time to read some reviews. Here's one from Marvelous Hedgehog. Love the name. Uh, Gillian and Diana are very funny together. I'd enjoy just listening to them banter the whole time. But then we get the added bonus of very interesting and digestible interviews on fascinating steam subjects. Love it. Two exclamation points. Thanks for bringing this podcast to us. Oh, thank you so much. Here's another one from Why Should I Have to Make a Nickname? <laughs> I love this podcast because it explains STEM subjects for me in a way that's easy to understand and also activates my wonder and curiosity. I often shied away from these topics because I thought I lacked the tools necessary to comprehend them, but this podcast makes science cool again. I'm so grateful and look forward eagerly to more episodes. Also, both the hosts have such a fun chemistry. It is like hanging out with old friends who always make you feel welcome. Oh, my goodness. This is so kind. And that's, I mean, everything I was hoping for that people would get out of the podcast. Oh, I feel all fuzzy and warm. If you've if, been in. Oh, please. Yeah, go, no, 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 no. All right. Um, if you've been enjoying the show and you've been thinking about giving us a rating, please, please do it. And don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We need more reviews to read before the credits. So come on, help us out. This show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. We also get research assistance from Catherine Seifer and Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.